can I ask you, and, and this is not just a guy question as I understand, but how many of you, when you're watching a movie, love a good battle scene? You love a good battle scene. Okay, well, that's not even half of you, seriously. May, I need to ask this question once again because maybe you didn't hear me. How many of you, when you're watching a movie, love a good battle scene? Raise your hand. You love a good battle scene. Now, here's why I love a good battle scene because generally, though not always, generally it is a battle against principles. It's a battle of what is right and good against that which is evil. And today, as we are looking, as we're going to continue our series through the book of Mark, we need to see that we are in a battle, and as we watch, or I don't, when I read, I watch, right? When you read the book of Mark, we're going to see this battle unfold, and it is a battle between two kingdoms. It is the kingdom that Jesus came to establish, but he came to establish it in the heart of the kingdom of darkness. John calls it the kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness, truth, lies, uh, this is a kingdom in which Jesus is the king, and he, he, he came into our existence to be able to establish this kingdom. So consequently, church, here is a truth. Whether we like it or not, we are in the midst of the, this battle between two kingdoms. You encounter it every single day. All of life can be boiled down to this battle. And as we look... At the life of Jesus Christ, Mark gave us a clue, and he said, in the, he said, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I told you in your Bibles, underline that word God. The, the, the beginning of this story actually goes through several verses that we're going to be covering today, actually 1 through 13 and we see this title, Son of God, as the introduction to this book of Mark. Mark lays out for us that title in two different ways. He, he calls Jesus the Son of God, and then today we're going to look at Jesus' title, the Son of God. And this is different because as we see that God, Jesus, as God came down into our existence, he took on our frailties, he even was willing to go through what we, we would probably about 33 years of suffering such similar temptations and struggles and frailties of human life. He entered into our battle in order to win it so that we can walk in a victory. A victory between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Between Jesus' established kingdom, which he's the king, and the kingdom of darkness in which Satan, and we're going to talk about Satan today, the Satan is the king of his kingdom or ruler of the kingdom of darkness. So Mark, the book of Mark, presents us with these two kingdoms, with Jesus' kingdom coming in to invade this present earthly kingdom, this present darkness. The second thing is Mark focuses on Jesus' kingdom with him as king offering a battle plan of freedom. We call that battle plan the gospel. So Mark tells us in the very first verse, there is good news about this breaking in of a new kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, with him as the king. There is good news 
as Jesus does this, establishing his kingdom, and that plan, that good news is what G, who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us, not just so that we can go to heaven. As, as tell you what, I'm 58 now. The older I get, the more I look forward to being with Jesus forever and ever, okay? Maybe Jesus will give me 20, 30, or 40 more years. Wow, that would be amazing. But I tell you what, I'm looking forward to that. But, but the gospel is more than just looking ahead to then. The gospel is for you and me right now. The gospel is the battle plan. It's the good news that Jesus didn't just come to rescue me out of this world, but to rescue me out of sin in this world to fight this battle. Now, whether you like it or not, you can be sitting here today as someone who is who doesn't trust in Christ for even heaven itself. You do not believe that Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord. Regardless, you are in a battle. Like it or not, you were a Christian. Whether you like it or not, you too are in a battle. And every moment of every day, you are in that battle. And I want to ask you today, how are you doing? Because if you don't realize that you're in this battle, you're going to get focused on a lot of other stuff. You're going to pursue wealth. Jesus said, Wealth is deceptive. I'm not opposed to wealth. Jesus wasn't. Solomon certainly wasn't. But you know what? And by the way, Abraham wasn't. A really good example. But wealth can become deceptive. Recreation. I love recreation. But it can become a focus and a distraction. So many things that God blesses us on this earth are meant for good that can become distractions. Those distractions are part of this battle that I'm talking to you about. All of the hard stuff of life is this battle. And so we need to know, how do I go through this battle? Because that is the stuff of life. You cannot avoid it. This is the truth that I'm sharing with you. It doesn't matter what angle you approach life, what religion you come from, what philosophy of life you come from, it doesn't matter. This is a truth. You're in a battle. Love it or leave it. You're in a battle. And I need us, I, I need us to grasp some truths because as we look at Jesus' life as the son of God, we're going to glean some truths for us when we are in this battle. So that's the third thing, the inescapable battle that we are in. And that's what this gospel then is all about. Okay? Now, some years ago, actually five and a half years ago, um, some of the men in, some of the dads in this church had a sword ceremony. It, it was a very simple ceremony. I hope it blessed the young men that were a part of it. And we gave our sons swords. This is not a sharpened sword. It's not a tempered sword. It is just a sword to hang on Jim's wall. And behind it, where it hangs, there is a plaque, and it says, Defender of Purity. And so each of us men gave about an 8 to 10-minute challenge to our sons. We did it up front right after a steak dinner that was so amazing um, but we gave our sons ten to a five to excuse me an eight to ten minute challenge. Presented him with a sword, and in that challenge, I called my son to be a defender of purity. Defender of his purity, absolutely. 
but also a defender of the sisters in Christ around him, defending their purity as well. There's something about a sword, though, that maybe you're not aware of. First of all, I want you to know there are three steps in forming a sword. Now, you're I hope you're not even wondering why I'm having a sword. I'm talking about a battle right now. I'm talking about a, put, put two into it. You got it. You know, you're following me. I just wanted to make sure. But in this, within the making of the sword, there is the forming of the sword. You take a hunk of steel. Steel is carbon and iron mixed together, and you form the general shape of the sword. The second step is you've got to, you've got to shape it in a way and then sharpen it. So the second step is sharpening. The third step is forging. Now, here's something that's interesting that happens when you forge steel. Because carbon, when it reaches a certain temperature, there is a chemical reaction. And I don't understand it completely, but it actually tempers that metal. When you take iron and mix it with carbon and you heat it up to a certain temperature. Some of you probably even know what that temperature is. I don't. Um, but you heat it up to that temperature, and when you do, it makes the sword hard. It makes it hardened for battle specifically for two reasons. Number one, so it doesn't lose its edge so quickly. And number two, so that it doesn't break in battle. Jesus is trying to communicate to us today in what we're going to read that he too was a sword formed, we learned that last week, God invading our realm as Jesus, the God-man. What we're going to see today is the sharpening and the forging. And yes, even Jesus himself had to be forged. So if Jesus had to be forged for the ministry in this battle would you not suppose that maybe, just maybe, that you too would need to be forged? So let's look at Mark chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 7. And it says this, and this was his message. This is John the Baptist's message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus, and literally the Greek reads, and immediately as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. And, and a voice coming from heaven happened only three times in Jesus' ministry that we're aware of. Here, the transfiguration, and in John 12, when he says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice that sounded like thunder spoke, and Jesus said, this voice speaking from heaven was not for my benefit, but for yours. So I'm going to assume that what's being said here is not just for Jesus' benefit. It's for those around, and it is for you and me. And we're going to focus on that in just a moment. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son. Can you underline that word son in your Bible? You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased at once or immediately. 
the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, the time has come he said, the kingdom of God is near. It is breaking in with Jesus leading the way. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. As Jesus walked beside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting in it in the lake, for they were fishermen. May I just add, this is not Jesus' first encounter with them. Read John 1. One of the life groups is going through the book of John. John 1 talks about their first encounter. This happened quite a bit later. All right, it's important to know when you read what Jesus then says. He says, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men at once, immediately. They left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he, excuse me, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets without delay or immediately. He called them And they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired men and followed him. See you, Dad. Right? You probably saw how I emphasized a particular word as we were going through this. It's it's mentioned four times. It's the word immediately. And as we move into this passage and look at it, study it, and walk away, I hope, with some truths that can inspire and even change us, I want us to see that Mark has this tendency. He uses this word, I'm not going to tell you the Greek word, because then you're going to want me to spell it, and, and it's translated immediately. It's used four times in our text. Mark uses it 42 times in his gospel. The other gospels don't even come close, maybe 12. But Mark, the shortest of the four gospels, uses it 42 times, more than four times, more than four times, more than any other gospel, when you look at how many, only 16 chapters. He does this because Mark, it it may play into his personality, and God is using that to try and communicate something, but I want us to walk away with something. Church, the moment that we are in today, and every generation is urgent. The call that we're going to see here is urgent. We are in a battle. When you walk into a battle, do you just stroll casually? No, because your life is at stake. I need you to hear this, church. As we are encountering this battle, as Jesus is leading the way, and as he is establishing his kingdom in the midst of darkness, church, the hour is urgent. We need to have ears that hear and hearts willing to obey. Because what I'm going to touch on today touches on every hour of your day, every aspect of your day, because that is the battle. And Jesus is stepping into this battle. And the whole purpose of the gospel is to show us Jesus as the king, as the victor, as the one stepping into this darkness with light and life and truth and showing us the way. Because he is the way. This is it. So John, excuse me. So Mark uses this word immediately, over and over and over and over again. Immediately, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, the Spirit 
came down upon him. Mark is the only one who uses this word. The others just say the heavens opened. Mark uses a different Greek word here. It is the heavens ripped open. They were rended, cut asunder, if you will. It's not as if the clouds parted and a nice little dove came floating down from heaven and sat on Jesus' shoulder. What a nice little scene. No, the heavens were torn in two. Do you remember Stephen as a martyr when he stood before his accusers and they were stoning him right before he died? It says, I see heaven opened And it wasn't as if the clouds parted, because what does he see? Stephen has a vision, and he is peering into the throne room of God. You see, when heaven opens, it's not that the clouds part. It's that heaven itself, as it manifests or reveals itself to earth, that veil, if you will, is torn apart we then see something of the divine as we peer into the heaven. And this is what happens with Jesus. Mark is wanting us to know, hey, something that happens right here is so crucial because this is where God the Father sends his spirit. And what does the spirit do? It breaks from the throne room of God into the earthly realm where Jesus has become man. And he lights upon, the, lights upon Jesus, and it, we're not sure if it's exactly a dove. It just says, in the form, Luke uses the term in the form, of a dove. It's like a dove. So I don't want to make a big deal about this, but this dove comes down, and the Spirit is seen to come upon Jesus. Now, this is significant. You're aware, because I preached on this, that when Jesus became man, he took on your flesh and my flesh. He, He became man. And the word became flesh. It is not that the flesh, like, was laid over top of the divine, like Jesus had a divine spirit, but an earthly or human body. He was fully human, body and spirit, yet he was fully God. And how God, the infinite, can be encumbered by the finite and yet remain God, that's a really good question. Hang on to that one, and we'll ask Jesus when we get there, okay? Because I can't give you the answer. And theologians, and we can have great discussions, and, but the bottom line is, you know what? You don't know, and I don't know either. Our Jehovah's Witness friends think they do know, and consequently, they say Jesus was never God because he's a man. And I say, no, you missed it. And we saw in the very first chapter, we saw a quote from Isaiah that John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way of the, help me out, the Lord. And when you look in Isaiah, and that way, the Lord is specifically referring to Jesus. But when you go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, what word do you find? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that is not Adonai, that is Yahweh. Jesus is being called Yahweh by Mark in the very beginning as the Son of God. Today, the voice that comes from heaven as the Spirit is anointing Jesus says, this is my son. 
well, why does the son need to be anointed by the spirit? Now, within five verses, and you can count them, within five verses, the spirit or Holy Spirit's mentioned three times. I think that's a pretty big deal. I think that's pretty, I think Mark is trying to show us that the spirit of God in whatever he is doing for Jesus is very significant. It happens immediately. There's a sense of urgency here. We're not going to delay, not going to wait. Now, immediately, the spirit lights up and immediately the spirit takes him into the desert and so on. So this is significant. The Holy Spirit anoints Jesus because Jesus, we learned some time ago, laid aside his glories. And again, theologians love to get into this. What exactly is that? Number one, he did not stop being God. Number two, there were limitations that he willingly took upon himself as God was encumbered by humanity and the frailty, and he hungered and he thirsted, and he was completely dependent upon his father. He did not do miracles, though he could have, but he laid that miracle-working ability aside as God and chose to be anointed by the Spirit to do the miracles. That's why he did them. Jesus, God, come into our world as flesh, sourced the Spirit. He was completely dependent upon the Spirit. That's why he's anointed. Church, if Jesus needed to be anointed in this kingdom, in this battle that we are all facing, as God come in the flesh, do you not think that you and I need to be anointed by the Spirit, completely dependent upon the Spirit of God? And being dependent upon the Spirit of God, this is, this is now, we're going to see a focus on the relationship that the son has with the father and that the father has with the son. The spirit enables this. This happens in the very beginning. This is the introduction to Jesus, the God-man who was completely dependent upon his father who poured out his spirit upon his son. And so as we read through this, this, you could liken this outpouring of the Spirit upon Jesus as Jesus's sharpening. Jesus, as a sword, if you will, was being sharpened. So that when he engages the enemy, when he casts out demons, when he confronts the curse of sin, sickness, death, when he confronts them, he does so with a sharpened sword in battle. Now, his anointing then can be seen as the sharpening of that sword. And every single one of us needs our short sword sharpened. And I'm going to tell you what, I'm sorry, I don't know about you. I need my sword sharpened every day. I need the spirit of God to minister truth to me. I need to become completely dependent upon the spirit and not upon my own personal wisdom. There's sometimes... The Spirit of God will speak through my own wisdom, and, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, honestly. But the Spirit of God will speak to our hearts. We become dependent upon the sword. The, the Spirit, the, your sword becomes sharpened. 
I want to move now and talk about how Jesus' sword, if I can word it that way, was forged, was tempered. How the steel became so hardened that it kept that edge and did not break. It says here that Jesus, excuse me one second, I I, I need to back up, sorry. Getting ahead of myself. The father speaks to Jesus and he says this, you are my son, whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Now, you may be sitting there and say, well, that's, that's well and good enough. Of course, the father's going to love his only begotten son. But what about me? Can I ask you, what did the father love so much about his son? Because the son was so completely obedient and looking to the father. And with that in mind, you probably feel guilty right now. Truly. I'm not that obedient, so does the father just not love me that much? Are there times, because I feel this way in which he kind of kicks me to the curb? We can feel this way. God, where are you in this situation? Do you not love me? But you see, we're missing then the gospel. Because Jesus, with the gospel, paving the way, invites us now into a relationship with him. Do you know what baptism portrays, what it pictures? We are are baptized into Jesus Christ, right? It is a picture of Mike Curtis, the old Mike Curtis, dying and being raised up in newness of life in Christ Jesus. So guess what? The Father, and I don't get this, is continuously, perpetually pleased with me, even though I fail him on a regular basis, because I am in the one whom he loved. And because of that, he is well pleased. Jesus had done no miracles here. The father wasn't stepping back and applauding. Oh, I love it. Good job, buddy. Thumbs up. I love you because of all that you have done. No, he loved the father because the father in in humble service obeyed his heavenly father. And that relationship was one of submission. In Christ then, because of the gospel, the father looks to you. And he always says, without exception, even in the battle where you feel like you have totally failed him, you're my son, you're my daughter, whom I love. I am well pleased because you are in Christ. That relationship and the status of that relationship And the measure of love that beats in the father heart of God never changes. Never changes. You can't do enough to make it increase, but you can never fail enough. You can never sin to make it decrease. That's where we are in Christ. So as we go forward, as we are entering into this battle, you do so, even though you fail, like me, you fail You are in Christ. 
And the Father is so, his, his heart for you is so huge. He is so well pleased. Let's look at this. It says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was, temp- where he was tempted. He wasn't led into the temptation, but he was led to a place where he was tempted, where he was, the Greek word for tempt also means test. So understand that these temptations are testings. They're forgings, if you will. They're the fire and the stuff of the battle of life that we all go through that is forging Jesus right now. And the heat is increasing. And I tell you what, I don't like the heat. For me, 90 degrees, sweating in 90 degrees is a whole lot. But when steel is forged, what I think it's over 1,400 degrees. It's probably closer to 3,000. I, I, I don't know, but it, it's a lot. It's a whole lot more than I like. But when we go through that, and Jesus went through it, church, there was something for Jesus because he never sinned. I'm going to use this word. Jesus as a man, God in the flesh, his intimacy with the Father was galvanized. I'm going to word it that way. It was galvanized. It was tempered. It was strong. It was proven strong, unbreakable. Okay? For us, it's, more, it's a whole lot more than that because you and I fail. And our sword needs to get resharpened and then uh, tempered more, and then sharpened some more, and tempered more. For Jesus, before he steps into ministry, his sword is tempered. It's galvanized. That relationship. So here's what I'm saying. Everything that happened in those 40 days caused, forced, if you will, Jesus to source the Father, to look to the Father very quickly. Matthew and Luke bring this up. Luke doesn't, so I'm going to be brief. If you're the son of God, take these stones, turn them to bread. As the son of God, God himself, he could do this. He chose not to. He chose not to appeal to his own personhood to do any miracles. When you come to the Gnostic Gospels that were written one to 300 years after the, the real Gospels were written, the four true Gospels, You see Jesus sourcing stuff. You see Jesus doing miracles for his own benefit to wow people. Jesus did miracles to declare who he was and to minister out of compassion to the needs of the people around him. He never turned bread, excuse me, he never turned stones to bread to feed his own body. He never sourced self, if I could put it that way. He always looked to the Father and by the power of the Spirit did miracles. He didn't do them for himself. He didn't do them according to his own abilities, if you will. And as intimate with the Father, the Spirit anointed and worked through him. That then is a picture for every single one of us. As we now talk about this desert, picture, that's me. This is not just Jesus, this is me. This, this is my sharpened, sharpened sword. It's now being tempered in battle. Not just for battle, but in battle. So Jesus 
refused to turn the stones into bread. Then he was invited to the pinnacle of a temple, and he said, you know, why don't you just jump up? Why don't you just prove the Father's love for you? Why don't you just see if, if God will send his angels to catch you? Why don't you test the Father's love? Are you, are you be, have you ever done that? Come on, church. Have you, have you ever wondered, God, how much do you love me? If I do this, will you catch me? And there's this sense of fear. Is God faithful? Will he come through for me? Is this really a covenant in which he will never fail me? Or maybe if I sin enough, he'll be so disappointed in me, and he will say, okay, Mike, fend for yourself. He didn't do that with the son. And so Jesus, he realized, you know what? I am not going to do that. I'm going to look to the truth of God's word, and I'm going to look to the Father. And so Jesus said, well, look, I got one even, one even better than this. Are you ready? Now, understand the three temptations that Matthew and Luke talk about happened after the 40 days. Jesus was tempted the whole 40 days. So Jesus was not just tempted three times. This is at the very end in which, as a human being, he is at his weakest most vulnerable, the toughest time, and I would venture to say the three most significant, hardest temptations, trials, testings, forgings, happen at the very end. Isn't it a wonder, sometimes when we're going through trials, you begin to wonder, God, right now, of all times, I was up all night with my baby, and now my boss is reaming me out. I want to string him up. I want to strangle him. I want to say something. I want to give him a piece of my mind, and the only reason why I don't is because I have no more left to spare. The truth is, we, the truth is, we, we many times find ourselves at our weakest point in our most significant battles. And so the, here's the last temptation, Jesus. I got the easy road for you. Are you ready for this? I will give you all of the splendor of the nations, which is why you're here, right? I'm not saying that Satan knew the complete plan of God because he's not omniscient. I'm sure he didn't. But he knew that God had had a plan. You know, Jesus, I'll just give you all the nations, all the splendor. That's what you're here for. And all you've got to do is just bend your knee to me. How simple. And Jesus is probably thinking, not that Satan knew the plan, but Jesus is thinking, well, no cross. I won't need to die. I won't need to raise. I won't need to have the sins of mankind upon my shoulders. What an easy out. Far be it from Jesus to succumb to that. And Jesus took God's plan, God's way, God's road, the way of the Father, the way of the cross and the resurrection. He took the hard road. It is so easy for us when we are going through these times to look for an easy out. God, just stop the pain. Just stop it. I want us to realize that with every trial that we go through, there is a sovereign purpose that's involved. You will not always understand it. You remember when I preached a sermon from... uh, Paul's be filled with the spirit. And we overlaid an illustration of holes and how God fills us with his spirit as we are climbing out of this hole. And Paul worded it this way. He said, I struggle with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I struggle with 
his energy. I struggle with his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Mm. And every day, in every battle that you face, in this conflict between two kingdoms, we get weary. It feels like that hole that we're in is so far up, so far to go. But God empowers us by his spirit, forms character in us, is, I want to focus on today, forging you. And whether you like it or not, he is forging you as his son, as his daughter, to keep with the illustration, as his sharpened, forged sword for battle that you are in, like it or not. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you got to like your pain. You have to like these trials. But they are absolutely crucial in forging in us that which is absolutely necessary and crucial for this battle. The battle is inescapable. That's not really good news. Some of you came and just, I, I just wanted to all be over with. Here, though, and understand the promises that we need to discover here. I've got a few minutes left to, to talk on this, 10 minutes. I want you to look back with me to, to Job. And when Job, <coughs> excuse me, when Job went through his hard time, he wasn't perfect. He went through this difficulty. What he did not know was chapter one. Oh, he felt the attacks of Satan, but he didn't see them as that. He didn't see the battle that was going on. He didn't understand the license that God the Father had given to Satan to bring affliction into Job's life. In, at the, in the very last chapter, Job says that God afflicted him. But you and I understand what that means. Because it really is saying that God, in his sovereignty over all of this, and his king and ruler, he allowed Satan an inch into Job's life. And it was a big inch. Satan then was permitted to afflict Job, but never take his life. Do you, want, do you remember how Job responded? He never cursed God. But he did curse his birth. He did feel a sense of injustice in all of this. He continually held on to and declared his righteousness, though no one is completely perfect. But he refused to side with his friends, and he was writing doing this. I am not going through this because of my, the sin in my life. God is not punishing me. But the mistake Job made was that he believed that there was an injustice that God had done, that there was something wrong, that God, you have allowed this, but look at my righteous life. This isn't right. And Job was angry with God. Now listen to what God says to Job. Chapter 40. At the very end, as the book is summing up, coming to an end, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty Correct him. Let him who accuses God answer him. Job's response is, I am unworthy. 
how can I reply to you? Skipping down to verse seven. God, verse six, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Verse seven, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer. Two chapters later, as God is done dealing with Job and bringing some correction to him, we discover that Job is blessed twice as much. The favor, grace, blessing of God is all over his life. I'm saying this because it is so very natural in us when we're going through these times of tempering and they have church, they happen every day. Some circumstances far more significant than others. One day it might be, I, I, I just can't find my shoe. Another day, it's someone who's so very close to you passing away. And it is not hard for us to be angry with God. It is not hard for us to be frustrated and question and wonder and even at times accuse God of wrongdoing. And God understands this. And he does not rebuke us as we should. He just simply says, brace yourself like a man. Okay, brace yourself like a woman. I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to speak truth to you right now. And here is the truth. So brace yourself. You will go through trials in this life. And there is no guarantee that tomorrow you won't. Be ready. God is forging you. He is crafting you. He is sharpening you. Because your very purpose in this life is to live in his kingdom and bring glory and honor to him. Bless God if you accumulate wealth along the way. Bless God if he gives you many children along the way. Bless God if you find favor in your boss's eyes and he promotes you. Bless God if you can take vacations every year because many in this world can't. Bless God when you find food on your table and ample provision because Christians in countries in which they are persecuted have next to nothing. Bless God when you wake up in the morning and the sun is shining with a cup of coffee in your hand and you greet the morning with cheer because many find them, wake up in the morning and find themselves in a prison cell, but they still trust in Jesus. So brace yourself like a man. Brace yourself like a woman because here's the truth. You're in a battle. He is sharpening your sword. Your entire life is about this. And with that sword and in those battles, how do you gain victory by bringing him glory? Because it is not about you and it's not about me. It is about him. Period, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. It is about him. So bless God if if he pours out favor upon you like he did with Job. Along the way, we may feel like we lose a lot. But look at that very next thing that Mark tells us. It says, and he was with the wild animals. The Greek word there is just simply the word dangerous, the dangerous ones or dangerous creatures. So the wild animals, they're not lions that you tame with a chair. 
they are lions that will tear you apart and eat you for lunch. And there were lions in that day in Palestine. And I'm sure they had seven course meals regularly. The truth, though, is that Jesus in this forging time in the wilderness had dangerous animals around him. So why is Mark bringing this up? Because you need to know this. As hard as your battle is, the promise of God's word is this. He will never allow it to be too much for you. That is, now listen to me correctly, it will never be too much for you in Christ. In your flesh, I'm going to guarantee it will be too much for you. In your flesh, if you don't look to the father as his son or as his daughter, you will lose. The devil will gain ground. The kingdom of darkness will impinge upon your freedom and your joy in this life, and you will lose ground. But in Christ, as you seek God and in this intimate relationship, because all of these trials, that is what he is building. As we were to look to Luke or Matthew, that's the, that is the very thing that Jesus came out of. His relationship with the Father was galvanized. Luke says this, when he came back after that time, he came back in the power of the Spirit. And I don't know about you, I want to live this life in this day-to-day battle between these two kingdoms. And I've made a choice which kingdom I will live in, and I find myself in Christ. But in so doing, I must, I must look to God the Father. I must seek him and thereby be empowered by his spirit to win in these day-to-day battles. That God promises, if I let him, will only serve to strengthen my sword so that it stays sharp and will never break. And at the very end, and I'm going to just confess to you right now, I don't really understand this last section. Angels attended him. At the very end, 40 days, Jesus, you know, we kind of read through and, yeah, yeah, I mean, he's the son of God. Of course he's going to win. Yeah, oh. Put it to him, Jesus. Come on. Oh, I love that comeback. Yes. Quoting scripture every single time. Yes, Jesus wins. But if you could have been there and watched, I would venture to say Jesus was so exhausted in his physical body, wearied after 40 days of no food, that angels truly needed to minister to him. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, It says this. It says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? God, whether you see them or not, and I'm not going to encourage you, look for them. Uh, that, That becomes a game. That's silly. Scripture never tells us, you know, seek out the angels. But the angels are here, whether we see them or not, ministering to you and me as heirs of salvation, just like they ministered to Jesus. Can I ask you, how many of you have ever been in a car accident in which you should have died? My wife was. How many of you have ever encountered 
a situation in which you would have to say, whoa, if this didn't happen, I should have died. How many of you have ever been in those situations? You should have died. Stephen was telling us, I did, I'm going to botch it, brother, I'm sorry, but that he was approaching a stop sign, a red light. I think a red light, right? Yes. And he just felt like he was supposed to put his foot on the brakes and... There was an accident right in front of him. The car that was hit spun around, and how many inches was it from your bumper? He could only put his hand between the car that got hit and himself, and God spared him. Now, I don't know exactly where those angels were positioned, but positioned well enough to protect you. God will help you. He will protect you from the dangers as you are going through this life. He's not abandoned you. He will attend you and minister to you by angels from his throne. Is that not cool or what? Because God is good. He is not abandoning us. He doesn't just say, okay, wait, good luck in that battle today. See ya. Maybe give me a phone call sometime. No, he, he's right there with us. Right there attending us with angels and however he chooses. And the Bible even says that people have entertained angels unawares. And we may have met them. The Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about angels and demons for a good reason. Many people go off on the deep end in that. Just know this, that you're an heir of salvation. God has your back. God will take care of you as hard as your battle is. He will take care of you. This is what he asks. I'm going to close with this. In those last several verses, the word immediately is used twice. Jesus calls James and John, come with me. Enter into this kingdom by repenting and believing the good news. Enter into this battle because this is the stuff of life. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men where there will be battles every day that by the power of the spirit and a sharp sword that's been forged in the fire, you will win. You will gain the upper hand. And my God, my father will empower you by his spirit to that end of victory of the gospel spreading throughout. Come follow me. Enter into this battle. Immediately, they drop their nets. Immediately, they drop their nets. When Jesus sees James and John, the first was Peter and Andrew, James and John, he immediately calls them. And they kind of look at their dad and, Dad, I talked to you about this day. We met this guy. I think he's the Messiah. We're going to follow him. And they step out of their boats and they, they're not abandoning their father. He's got some hired hands, okay? Dad, you got this. The men, with, they got, we're going to follow Jesus. Here's my challenge to you. Today, immediately. If you've been straying, no, 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 follow Jesus. If you have yet to surrender your heart to Jesus Christ, today he calls to you, follow me. Take up the sword in hand. I have got such victories for you to walk in. Can you do this? Because whether you like it or not, there's a battle. There's two kingdoms, whether you want it or not. There's battles in, that you're going to encounter every single day. Be on the winning side. Come into my kingdom. I've got good news for you. Follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. 
Let me make you victorious. Can you do that? Can you stand with me right now? Let's respond to this word. Let something in our heart cry out. If you've been in this ferocious battle, you feel like you're losing, God is on your side and he is empowering you. If you feel like God has abandoned you, no, 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 no. You, you've got it all mixed around. He is fighting for you as you look to him. You're in this battle so that you will look to the Father. And as you do, he will be your source, your strength. He will pour out his grace and ample provision for you today. So, Father, we do that right now. We look to you. You're good. Your grace is more than enough. We look to you, and, Father, we respond, and, and we, will, we are saying, I will follow you, Jesus. No turning back. We will follow you. Father, I just pray, encourage our hearts today. This is not bad news. This is the good news. That Jesus came to rescue me and prepare me for battle because these 70 years I've got here on this earth or more means everything in light of eternity. God, empower us today. Galvanize and, and forge and temper my sword today. I choose to follow you. I just ask you, Lord, today, minister hope and truth and everything that we need to fight that battle. Thank you that we're on the winning side and that you are so, so very good. We're your son. We're your daughter whom you love and are so, very well pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.